0: You know, when you see a photograph, what does it make you feel? Does it make you feel emotional? Mm-hmm. Does it make you feel inspired? I think when I see photos that make me feel one of those things, those are the photos that my eyes dwell on the longest and that I and those are when I see those photos I instantly am like I need to see more work from that photographer. And what a photograph actually
1: This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host W. Scott Olsen with another fascinating conversation. Well hello everyone and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson and today folks today you need a good pair of hiking boots, you need a coat, you need a pair of gloves because we're going outside. Today we are talking about wildlife photography, we're talking about nature photography and we're talking about it with somebody who's not only already one of the best but is simultaneously listed among the up and coming. We're talking with Liron Gertzman. Liron is 21 years old and already has a professional career that is more than a decade long came to my attention the other day because i'm sitting at my computer and i get a little announcement that says the 2022 autobahn photography awards the winners and honorable mentions have been announced and i start scrolling through it and in the professional not the amateur in the professional category the award goes to leron gertzman for this magnificent picture of a white-tailed ptarmigan and right below that the video award winner is the same guy so absolutely today we're talking about nature photography something that all of us have tried and many of us have been frustrated by some of us have had some substantial success uh, and I'm looking forward to it Liron welcome how's everything over in British Columbia today
0: oh that's, well thank you so much for having me it's a beautiful day here um, sun's shining not a cloud in the sky and honestly that's been the weather for the last few days which has made for some good astrophotography opportunities actually
1: I bet. I mean, British Columbia is known for rain and, and a little little bit of more challenging weather than clear skies. So I, I, I envy you that. Leon. I'm impressed. I, I'll just, you know, just, right from the beginning, I look at this stuff. I have a hard enough time taking a picture of a crow or a robin in my backyard, you know, much less doing the kind of work that you're doing. And you started young. You started when you were five years old with borrowed binoculars. So, I mean, tell me how, you know, A 21-year-old has already a a career-long decade as a professional, but tell me how you got started just in your interest with nature and landscape and astro and the rest of it.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I feel really fortunate to be based, first of all, in this part of the world where I live, the coast of British Columbia, Mm -hmm. Canada. We've got some remarkable wildlife photography opportunities, landscape photography opportunities. It's a beautiful place in the world. It's a place that people travel all over to come to. And even in the city of Vancouver here, I mean, you can just go for a walk outside in in one of our local parks and see lots of birds. And it was on kind of those, you know, neighborhood walks with my family as a kid that I first fell in love with the natural world. And, you know, we had a, a cheap pair of binoculars that my parents had and a cheap little point and shoot camera. And, we, you know, we would go out to the park with it and I would beg them to let me use that gear. And I, that's how I started observing and photographing nature.
1: Do you remember some of your early shots? Were they just of stuff, you know, robins you'd see in the park or was there some extraordinary stuff calling to you back then? A lot of ducks. In the (laughs) wintertime, especially here, we get a lot of ducks and we've one species
0: in particular that is just beautiful. It's actually found across much of North America, but that's the wood duck. And uh-huh. uh, I remember the first time I got a shot of a wood duck, it was just like, a, I was like looking down at it. It was like, you know, in the pond below me, uh, not a very good shot, but I was just so thrilled because of how beautiful this bird was.
1: Well, th- what about photography was calling to you back then? Because I mean, you know, why not soccer? Why not the violin? You know, what what is it about imaging that, that was speaking to you? I don't really know. I loved it. It was just
0: something that brought me so much joy. And I think as the years have passed, I've developed... Uh, you know, my relationship with photography has further developed. And these days, I see it a lot as a way to kind of document the natural world, but also bring that to people to kind of show how beautiful and worth protecting it is. But back then, I think it was just something that I, I really loved doing. It brought me so much joy.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you just graduated from the University of British Columbia with a degree in biology. Is that because of the photography? Are you going to do something else, you know, with the biology that will inform your photography? Tell me about that interest. Yeah, so that's
0: a really great question. And, you know, from the very beginning of when I was taking photos as a kid, it was always of nature. I was always really into the natural world, into wildlife, especially into birds. And that carried on through high school. And I think growing up, I thought I was going to be, well, several things, but I thought I was going to be an educator of some form, like a professor, um, you know, a biology professor, an ornithologist, a researcher, But as the years went on, I found myself just falling in love more and more with photography. And I realized that photography is something that I really want to do in my life. But when it came to the time to, you know, you know, go on to post-secondary education, I felt that it was important to do so. And there was the route open in front of me, I guess, of pursuing, you know, a more arts education in photography. But I was... You know, very happy photographing for for many years. I'm sure there would have been so much more to learn. You know, in the more formal side of things, since I was I was mostly self taught. But I felt that taking a biology degree would kind of suit my interests as well, and kind of open up further opportunities in the fir- in the future when it came to combining photography with science and photojournalism mm-hmm. and conservation photojournalism. So yeah, over the last uh, four years, I expanded the more academic side of my scientific understanding of the natural world. And I'm hoping that that will help provide opportunities in the future to collaborate with researchers and scientists on the ground uh, studying,
1: you know, the natural world and help tell these conservation stories. I, I mean, I love that idea because I think the, the more you know about the, the science behind it, the more you know what to look for at, as a photographer, right? I mean, the, the, your, your entire focus can change um, in terms of, hey, I understand, for example, that polar bear hair is hollow. Um, so, okay, let, let me see what I can do that way. Do, do you find your science background affecting photography, things like composition or choice of subjects? Absolutely. Um, I think especially with wildlife, as important
0: as having an understanding of how to operate your camera and how to compose your photo, probably even more important than that is understanding the animal that you're going to photograph. Because if you're going to capture interesting and unique behaviors, you need to know when those behaviors are going to happen, why they might happen, whether my presence is maybe having an influence on that animal's behavior that might prevent it from acting in its, you know, normal, natural, incredible way. Um, So having that understanding is so useful. Also, with knowing where to find animals and when to find animals. So I constantly strive to learn as much as possible about the animals that I'm photographing in order to help me achieve the best photos that I can take.
1: Um, And and your work is getting an awful lot of attention. You've been on The National with CBC and and Radio 1. You've been in, you know, Canadian Geographic, The Guardian, Geo Magazine. You're at the Natural History Museum in London, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. What makes a good, what makes a great nature photo? photo? Ooh, you know... I don't know if there's one thing that I could say to answer that
0: question. And I'm not sure I'm the most qualified person <laughs> to answer that question. But I think the the perhaps the most important thing in my mind is the emotional impact. You know, when you see a photograph, what does it make you feel? Does it make you feel emotional? Mm-hmm. Does it make you feel inspired? I think when I see photos that make me feel one of those things, those are the photos that my eyes dwell on the longest, and that I and those are when I see those photos, I instantly am like I need to see more work from from that photographer. And what in a photograph actually leads something to having like an emotional or inspirational impact? I don't really know what that is. Um, I certainly think light behavior, all that stuff plays a big role. But I think it varies dramatically from photo to photo and from photographer to photographer.
1: Well, OK, let's talk about your award winning photograph then the one of, of the ptarmigan up, up in the mountains. Well, first of all, just tell me the story of that photo. And and everybody, you, know, you can go to the Audubon.org site. You can see the image there. But it, it is a magnificent photo. Tell me the story. Yeah, well, the white-tailed ptarmigan is one of my favorite birds, actually. And and
0: one of the things I like to do with my photography is try to photograph birds that most people have never heard of. And I feel like ptarmigans are kind of one of those birds where people may have heard of a ptarmigan, but they don't really know what a ptarmigan is. So essentially, a ptarmigan is a mountain chicken. It's this chicken (laughs) that (laughs) lives up in the alpine, in the tundra of the mountains. The white-tailed ptarmigan lives throughout the Rocky Mountains and surrounding mountain ranges in North America. And they are so remarkable because they actually change their feathers throughout the year to match their surroundings. So in the Mm -hmm. wintertime, they're completely white and they blend in with the snow. And then in the summertime, they molt their feathers and they're more of like a mottled gray brown color to blend in with that rocky tundra. So this is a bird that is extremely difficult to find. And, you know, for bird watchers um, like myself, I enjoy doing lots of just birding as well. This is a bird that is very sought after and, you know, it's a species that is notorious for sending birders on wild chicken chase, I would call it, you know, (laughs) hikes through the mountains, um, through crazy terrain, often unsuccessful trying to find this bird. And, you know, over the years, I've gone on many, many hikes trying to find this bird, some of them successful, but many more unsuccessful. And One thing that always strikes me when I'm looking for these birds is that they live in one of the most beautiful ecosystems imaginable. This high alpine environment above where trees can even grow. So you just see the endless mountains, the steep cliffs, the wildflowers blooming in the tundra. It's a spectacular environment. So when I encountered a group of uh, ptarmigan up in Jasper National Park and I saw them, I thought, I need to capture this environment in the image. So instead of doing, you know, the traditional wildlife photography thing and just using a long telephoto lens, I watched these birds, I kind of, you know, got a sense of where they were feeding, where they were moving, and I put on a wide angle lens, and I just sat down and let them kind of feed around me. And several of them, you know, came within just a few feet of me, and I, I used this wide angle lens to capture these birds within the context of their environment. I Apparently that resonated with people, and uh, I was super excited to uh, when that image was awarded. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I'm looking at the information. You're using a 17 to 40 millimeter zoom here. So you are close. Now, the, the ptarmigan is actually a bird I know from being up on the Dempster Highway in the Yukon and, and uh, Northwest Territories. And and when I came around a corner, you know, there was a bunch of them there, but they scattered right away. They're sort of like prairie chickens here in Minnesota. If they know you're there, poof, they're gone. Did you have to sit for hours for these birds to become sort of Acclimated to your presence? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know,
0: with ptarmigan, I find the species of ptarmigan seems to have quite an impact on how skittish they are around people. So I would guess that the ptarmigan that you saw up on the Dempster Highway were probably willow ptarmigan. And my experience with willow ptarmigan is that they tend to be a lot more skittish. I've never really gotten closer than maybe like five meters to a willow ptarmigan. Whitetail ptarmigan, on the other hand, seem to be a lot more calm. And they seem to just kind of, in many cases, completely act oblivious to the presence of people. I don't know why that is. I suspect it could have to do with uh, the predators where these animals are found. So willow ptarmigan are found often a little bit lower down in more of that like subalpine willow shrub, um, where there's a lot more camouflage for predators. So they probably have a lot more fear. Um, Whereas white-tailed ptarmigans are found in this high alpine where there's a lot less predators and a lot less cover. So they can kind of just see everything around them. That said, I, you know, I haven't actually looked into the science behind this. I don't know if anyone has, but I would suspect it's something along those lines. So my experience with white-tailed ptarmigan is that they tend to be really uh, accommodating. Like they, they often act as if you're not there. You still can't, you know, walk right up to one most of the time, you know, they'll still want some, some distance, but if you just kind of sit down and act like you're a rock, um, they will, they will completely ignore you and you get to watch them acting naturally in, in the environment.
1: Well, tell me again, the story of this image. I mean, did you hike for three hours to get up there? Was this just, you know, a roadside pullout? Tell me how you got to be where you were. Yeah. So normally
0: when I'm photographing ptarmigan, it can involve a lot of hiking. Um, I've done several like overnight hikes and stuff trying to photograph ptarmigan. you know, where you're doing 10, 20, 25 kilometers on foot a day. This mm-hmm. hike in particular, I would say was actually on the easier side. And that was because there is a gondola that goes up the mountain in Jasper. So that <laughs> that took off kind of the, the hiking up into the alpine section of the journey. Once we were in the alpine, I still was hiking around for a few hours before I found these birds. So I was still putting on my kilometers. But mm-hmm. um, this particular day, um, I had some more energy because I didn't have to climb that initial, you know, kilometer of
1: uh, of elevation. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. A gondola to the top of the mountain is is, is taking the ruggedness out of the nature photography here. This <laughs> I know, I know. It, but
0: I was very, um, uh, I felt very fortunate uh, to get that <laughs> to give me that little bit of extra energy.
1: <laughs> well, actually, I think that's inspiring because it, you know it's telling everybody you don't need to you know put on an expedition to go get some good shots. Well,
0: um, actually, on that, I would say. This is also where I think uh, planning and preparedness comes in in handy because mm-hmm. when I'm, whenever I'm going out to photograph something with a specific species in mind, there's often many different places where you might be able to encounter that bird. I have encountered ptarmigan in probably like a, do- a dozen different locations. However, every location has its ups and downs. And when you're planning something for photography, you often want to have, you know, as easy access to your 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 target species as possible, keeping in mind also that easy access might mean that maybe there's a lot more people around, so maybe they'll be a little more you know hidden, or maybe there'll be you know people in your photo or something like that. So it's always about finding a balance between ease of access, which means it's easier to photograph. And um, you know that wild experience, which often is important and needed to get the best and most unique photos. But uh, you know, when planning photographing a ptarmigan, I would highly recommend if you want to, you get as much time as possible in the alpine to look for scenarios like that where you you can uh, you can cheat a little bit and take a gondola up into the alpine. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, tell me a little bit in, in your work about planning versus serendipity. Tell me a, a story where you, I mean you planned for three weeks to go take a picture of fill in the blank against the story of, oh, my God, there's a bear right there. Yeah. So planning for me is
0: crucial in photography. Okay. But like okay. you said, sometimes things just happen and you get lucky. So there's one genre of photography that I've, I've really taken to in recent years that requires a lot of planning, and that is astrophotography. My main niche is birds, but I've really fallen in love with astro, astrophotography in recent years. And the amazing thing about astrophotography is that you can plan everything you can know exactly what your photo is going to look like months or years before you actually take that photo. Because we know where the stars are going to be in the night sky. We know what the moon's going to be doing. We know what the landscape in front of those stars is going to look like. Is it a mountain? Is it a tree? Is it a beach? Like you can plan everything and know exactly what your photo is going to look like. The only thing you can't really plan is weather. So often, you know, like you've planned your shots and you just need to figure out you know, you know, the week that you'll have to take that shot to get the stars in front of this mountain. Now you just need to wait for the weather. But in astrophotography, I'll, I'll give you a, a very recent story, a photo I just shared on my Instagram page yesterday, which uh, which uh, I was I was overwhelmed with some kind comments for. But there's a photo that I'd had in mind for several years, which I think really capture would would capture our coastal environment beautifully here on the coast of BC, British Columbia. We have a really diverse intertidal zone. So when the mm-hmm. water recedes at low tide, you get revealed all these amazing invertebrates like sea stars, sea urchins, anemones, nudibranchs, and, and all these amazing intertidal organisms. And it's so beautiful, but it's very difficult, in my opinion, to photograph it and do it justice. It's very much an alien world down there. It's so different from anything that uh, I, I, you know, I usually see, just photographing nature. But then in the starry sky above, well, that's another alien world and it's also beautiful. And a lot of these coastal areas here are far away from cities, so you have beautiful dark skies perfect for stargazing and capturing the night. And I thought what would be better than to combine the alien world in the night sky, you know, those stars, the Milky Way with this, you know, alien world underwater, these tide pools, anemones, sea urchins, and I got thinking, I got planning. And this is a shot I've had in mind for years. And what I would need to pull off this shot was, first of all, I would need an underwater housing for my camera with a dome port, which would allow me to have partial, a partial part of the image above the water and part of the image below the water with that you know, water line splitting it down in the middle. I would need a low tide, but I would need a low tide happening at night, which in the summertime doesn't happen very often here. But I wanted to photograph this in the summer because, first of all, we get a lot more clear skies in the summer and because in the summer is when we see the Milky Way core. Uh, but to photograph the Milky Way core, I would also need to be pointed south. So there's all these different factors that have to line up. But the great thing is all this information is available. You can figure out where and when you need to be to get this shot and identified only a few dates all summer that it would be possible that these conditions would line up for me to get this shot. So the only thing I was waiting on was the weather. And just uh, like a couple weeks ago, um, I was I put myself in the right place at the right time, just hoping that the weather would be clear. And the weather forecast was actually calling for partly cloudy skies and a chance of fog. So I wasn't too optimistic. But when I went outside at 1.30 in the morning and looked up, I was completely shocked and thrilled when I saw a completely clear sky, not a cloud in view. And I went down to the beach, hiked with my friend Miles you know, for uh, for about 45 minutes to get to the location that we'd previously scouted. We'd found a nice tide pole with anemones and sea urchins and got this shot, uh, which was, you know, something that I wasn't even convinced was possible. So I think that was a great example of where planning was so important. There were so many things that went
1: into this shot in advance to actually pull it off. But, well, I'm, I'm, yeah. looking, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the shot right now on your Instagram page, and I would have assumed the minute I saw it that it was a composite. I mean, just the, the, the way the lighting is working, the way you've got both you know a little bit of, of, a, of a sunset or sunrise and the stars and the lighting under the water. T- I mean, tell me more. T- tell me about the post-production. Tell me about the lighting, because it is a breathtaking image. Yeah, so what you're looking at there that looks like the sunset is actually the
0: moonset. set. Um, so okay. the same way the sun casts warm orange light on the horizon when it sets the moon does the same thing it's just a little it's not quite as bright so you don't notice it with your eyes but when you do a long exposure and brighten things up it looks just like the sunset but you are right in that this image here is a is a focus stack and uh, involves exposure bracketing so the camera is in the same position hanging in the tide pool but i'm using different settings for i'm using a longer shutter speed for the stars um, than I am for the foreground for the foreground I had I was holding a light to light the anemones which then for the shot okay. in the sky okay. I turned off yep. because that would cast some you know flares and stuff uh, lens flares into the image so this is a uh, a stack a focus stack and a exposure stack but it's a completely real image in that it is what this scene looks like in this day and time
1: oh man it, and it, it is so cool now now tell me the alternate story where you're walking along and suddenly something is surprising. Yeah, and
0: that does happen, but I will say <laughs> even in wildlife photography, I've learned over the years that planning and preparedness is so important and the more I do astrophotography, the more I learn about planning. The more I apply that to wildlife photography to get myself into the right place at the right time to get these shots. Mm -hmm. But as much as you're prepared, as much as you plan, those moments always happen when something amazing just happens in front of you and you just could never have predicted it. I think one moment that stands out for me is I was uh, driving in northwestern British Columbia with a friend of mine, fellow photographer, Ian Harland. Um, on, we were doing a road trip looking for wildlife and, you know, we know there's grizzly bears around. We were hoping to see grizzly bears, but we hadn't, you know, planned on seeing a grizzly bear in this specific spot. And we were just driving along and, and I spotted a little bit of movement on the side of this, uh, this remote road. And I pulled over to kind of take a look at what it was. And then one head pops out through the leaves, then another, then another, then another. And there's this mother bear with three little cubs, all just kind of staring out through the leaves and then they run across the road. And the shot was, you know, when it comes to capturing emotion, I think it did it very well. I think photographically, it's just a bear poking through foliage on the side of the road, but the emotion captured on the expressions of the bear cubs and on the mom, um, I think was, uh, was pretty impactful for people. And uh, it's an example of something I could have never planned. I just got lucky. It just happened right in front of me. And I was there to capture the photo.
1: Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Oh, you're breaking my heart, man, because uh, my, my grizzly bear story, again, up on the Dempster Highway, I'm driving along and here comes a bear up, up out of the, the willows and the tundra and stuff. And I, I, you know, I'm in my Jeep driving along. I'm not going that fast. I'm not going to run into it or anything. But of course, I slam on the brakes and I turn around in my seat because my camera is in the bag behind me. And I rummage and rummage and rummage and rummage. I finally get the camera out. I swing back around and guess what's not there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I completely missed the moment because of my camera, which taught me both an awful lot about my own expectations, but also where to keep the camera. in. The <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm looking at some of your duck pictures here and, and, and you've got a couple images. Again, this is on Instagram where the ducks looking straight down the barrel of the camera. These look like mean ducks, actually. <laughs> and, and so what I'm wondering is, you know, there's so much nature photography. How do you know when you found an authentic moment? I mean, a whale breaching has been photographed before, and yet every now and then something comes along and you think, oh, I've never seen it that way before, or I'm looking at these ducks, or I'm looking at these dolphins, or I'm looking at you know, th- these birds that you've got. How, how do you know for yourself, this is a keeper? Yeah. And I think, you know, capturing those
0: unique and rare moments is one of the most important things to kind of take your photos to the next level. Um, mm-hmm. What makes a keeper? I don't know what exactly makes a keeper. But I will say that when I get keepers, when I get my favorite shots, it's usually in scenarios when I've been spending a lot of time photographing one thing. When I started out, you know, in my earlier years of photography, and I'm visiting new places or I'm traveling around my home province of British Columbia, I was all about trying to see as much as possible, you know, spending one night here, one night here and moving every single night to a new destination or just spending two nights in one destination. And you get to see a lot and you capture a really diverse portfolio of images, but it's a lot of birds sitting on a stick or a bear on the side of the road, you know, a lot of nice portraits, but uh, lacking those, you know, emotional moments that, uh, that really inspire people. So mm-hmm. what I've found is when you spend more time with one subject, that really helps you capture these fleeting moments that only last a split second, that less people have photographed. In some cases, no one has photographed at all. So with ducks, for example, we get a lot of ducks here in Vancouver in the winter. Uh, there's a lot of photographers that come here that I take out on, you know, photography tours and workshops to photograph ducks every winter because we've got such a diversity of ducks and we've got them in our urban parks. So they have very little fear of people. So, if you go and photograph ducks for a day, you know you're going to get you you're pretty much guaranteed to get some amazing portraits of ducks. but if you want to get that really unique face expression or you want to get snow in your image or you want to get a cool like interaction between two ducks you've got to take most of the time thousands of photos and before you take thousands of photos you've got to get pretty lucky to get one really good shot without taking thousands and thousands of photos so it's not what everyone does, but I just love to spend as much time as possible and take as many photos as possible. That Mm -hmm. said, there are certain subjects in nature where it's not as good to spend as much time as possible from an ethical perspective. And that's very important. Um, you know, something like a bear near an urban area, if you're spending way too much time close to a bear in an urban area, uh, you could teach that bear that it's okay to be close to people. And in the context of an urban area where there's garbage, where there's People, you know, have food in their backyards and stuff. Uh, it's good to, you know, keep those, those healthy boundaries um, and make a bear know that it, it shouldn't be okay this close to a person. That's different when you're in a remote national park in Alaska. But the thing I love about birds is that you can just spend so much time with them and just have a very minimal or, or even no impact at all on their behavior. Um, if, you know, if you're watching their behavior closely and monitoring that, and that has really helped me, I think, uh, capture
1: unique moments over the years. Oh, man. That leads me to two questions. And and for you talk about knowing as much and, and specializing. I'm looking at your collections here. You've got astrophotography and birds and coastal wildlife and landscapes and this kind of stuff. And yet I've heard the argument that you really should i mean if you want to be an excellent not not just you know an adequate or a good but an excellent a uh, nature photography you need to specialize 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 and not only you know bears but polar bears and not only polar bears but male polar bears that appear to be left-handed um you know <laughs> that you, you 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 need to really get that specific before you can get that good is it i mean do you buy into that i actually think that's really important
0: i think um like if you try to be the, you know, get the best shots of everything, you're probably going to get, you, there's, you can very well get really great shots of lots of different subjects. But uh, I think in order to get the best shots of something, you need to be spending one, a lot of time on one specific thing. Um, I spend about 95% of my time photographing birds. I know there's a lot of other photos of wildlife on my page. Um, But I do spend most of my time photographing birds. And these days, I'm really focused in on bird behavior, trying to capture moments that are very fleeting or, or very just rare, like they just don't happen that often. And that's really my focus. But on the other hand, I find that bird photography, while birds are much more accessible than a lot of different other animals, they're harder to photograph in that To get a photo of a bird that really catches people's attention is a lot more challenging, in my opinion, getting a photo of a bear that captures people's attention which is why you might see a lot of bear photos or whale photos as well, because (laughs) I think you can spend a lot less time with animals like that and get a lot more impactful photos. Whereas to get impactful Mm -hmm. photos of something like a bird, because we're humans, I think are a little bit less naturally inclined to fall in love with birds compared to some of these more, you know, charismatic, large animals. I think it requires a little bit more time and commitment to really, to really try to do that with animals like birds. And even more so with, um, you know, insects and reptiles and amphibians. I have so much respect for these photographers who capture absolutely jaw-dropping beautiful artistic photos of animals that most people wouldn't even stop to look at like an
1: ant Mm -hmm. i want to go back to to the notion of ethics that you mentioned uh, a moment ago in just a moment Um, but i'm looking at at some of your bird pictures here which of course are fantastic and and let's talk technique for a second birds in flight I mean, that's a challenge, not only for focus or for exposure speed or for, you know, anything else. How do you get, you know, I'm looking at your picture here, stellar skies, or I'm looking at aerial acrobat, you know, really phenomenal pictures. How do you do that? I think, first of all, the most important thing is
0: time. These birds in flight shots that you see are the result of, you know, days or weeks spent. These are single photos out of Thousands or even tens of thousands. Um, I think persistence <laughs> and patience is key because you know birds are tough to photograph in flight. It, t- it takes a it takes a lot of a lot of time and patience. But there's certainly mm-hmm. technique that you can use to help achieve the best shots. One thing that I always look for when photographing something like a bird in flight is repetition. A lot of the time, when animals do something and you miss it, you, people get disappointed, but animals' behavior, human behavior, all behavior is repetitive. Animals will do the same thing over and over. And that's certainly the same thing with birds in flight. So if you saw something happen once, there's a reasonable chance it'll happen again. So with birds in flight, that's really critical. Um, I, When I'm photographing birds in flight, I'm doing it in locations where There's a lot of birds in flight, or there's one bird that's constantly flying the same route around its territory, or there's a swallow kind of doing circles around the pond, catching mosquitoes, places where I have lots and lots of opportunities to try to get the shot. Your, you know, in-camera technique is also important, like understanding your shutter speed and how that'll impact the image. Um, a lot of the time, I like to use a fast shutter speed and totally freeze that action, but it can also be nice sometimes to slow down that shutter speed and show a little bit of motion in the wingtips or even go really slow with your shutter speed and kind of get some real motion blur in your shot and kind of understanding how those camera settings will impact the final result is really important as well. But uh, I think the key thing is uh, persistence and just an understanding of their behavior.
1: Tell me the story of the image you call Colorful Chaos.
0: Yeah, that's that was a beautiful moment. That's a cool picture, yeah. Thank you, yeah. So that th- that photo is of cobalt-winged parakeets. And while I've spent most of my time photographing here in Western Canada, I did have an opportunity several years ago to go down to Ecuador. Um, it was actually a trip led by some professional conservation photographers, Karen Agner and Lucas Bustamante. And... Um, it was all about conservation photojournalism and how to tell photos that have an impact and that do good. And one of the places we visited was a place called a clay lick in the Ecuadorian Amazon in Yasuni National Park. And a clay lick is a place where parrots and parakeets and other animals too, um, like butterflies and you know some of the uh, ungulates in the forest, they all come to lick the clay and eat the clay. And there's various reasons why they do it, but it's mainly to kind of gain minerals and nutrients that they need in their diet and oftentimes help counteract the effect of like acidic fruits that they're eating in the rainforest. And at this particular site, it's probably best known for the cobalt wing parakeets because they arrive in flocks of hundreds. And they usually come about once a day down to the clay lick. They'll all descend at once and drink the water there and kind of pick away at the clay to get these nutrients. But when we were there it took three days for that to happen. We spent pretty much three full mornings there waiting in, in the hide for these birds to arrive. For whatever reason, the first couple of days they weren't coming down. It's possible there was a predator uh, that they saw, like a bird of prey or a snake or something that uh, that we didn't see. But on the third day, they finally came down and the sight of hundreds of parakeets just descending onto the forest floor to the clay-like like rain was breathtaking. It's one of the most amazing things I've experienced in the natural world. And they were down for quite a while. And because I'd been sitting in this hide for a couple days... I really had 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 tons of time to think about what I was going to do with my camera settings, what I was going to do with my composition to try to get the best photos possible. So I I had in my head, okay, I'm going to take photos with a fast shutter speed. I'm going to take photos with a slow shutter speed. I'm going to take photos all the way zoomed in. I'm shooting with a 100 to 400 millimeter lens. so I'm going to take photos at 400 millimeter, 100 millimeter. I had all these ideas lined up. But the one thing that I knew was going to be critical was to take lots of photos. Because with a frenzy of parakeets constantly descending up and down, every photo is completely different because the birds are in different positions. So I pretty much was continuously photographing for the entire time. And by doing that, the moment all these parakeets blasted off from the forest floor and returned to the canopy, I was ready taking photos. And that's what you see in that photo, colorful chaos. The moment hundreds of parakeets all erupt from the forest floor, heading back to the canopy uh, and captured with a slow shutter speed to really accentuate those colors and capture the chaos and the motion.
1: Yeah, I'd love the choice of, of going for the slow sp- shutter speed there because it, it's, it's a, a, almost impressionistic, watercolor-ish kind of thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. Thanks so much. Um, tell, you also lead uh, workshops and tours. So, you know, if I sign up with you, what are you going to teach me? Yeah.
0: So the first thing is I do a couple different types of workshops. I do one-on-one or like, you know, custom private group workshop where we, we, I, I talk to you, we figure out exactly what you want to learn, exactly what you want to photograph. And we come up with a custom itinerary to best suit your needs. But I also do, mm-hmm. you know, small group photography workshops, and these are going to be focused on a specific photo opportunity that I think is really, really special and really, really unique. So one opportunity that I'm developing uh, for summer 2023 is a bald eagle photography workshop here on the coast of British Columbia. And it's going to be the first of its kind. There's a lot of bald eagle photography workshops that take place where there's, you know, they're well-known sites or people have been photographing them for years, like up in Haynes, Alaska, and there's some amazing images that come out of those places. Um, But this opportunity here is one that I only, you know, even became aware of in more recent years and have since uh, managed to, to capture some images there where eagles are fishing for a species of fish called hake. They're they're like a cod. And the hake get pushed up to the surface of the water by strong currents, and you have hundreds of eagles coming to pick these hake off the water, one after another. You just have like hundreds of repetition, which is amazing for capturing dramatic flight shots of eagles. So what I like to do is take people out to a place where they are going to have a good experience in nature. I mean, nature is unpredictable, so you never know what's going to happen, but they're presented with an awesome photography opportunity. And so you're in the right place at the right time. But also, uh, I try to make sure that everyone, you know, before we get there, has an understanding of, you know, what the light is going to be like, what camera settings might be good options and compositions might be good options at this site um, from my past experiences. And we also go over things like post-processing. You know, photography in the field... It's it's great to capture things as best as you can in camera, but you know the editing, the the digital dark room is an important place to be as well. Um, so we go over all the aspects that go into into making a successful image. Do a lot of your images have a lot of post processing? So my style tends to be more light. Um, I really try to get things. As good as I can in camera, I kind of, most of my photos are a uh, much more, I would call photojournalistic style. Like I don't like adding or removing things. Um, I try mm-hmm. to capture it in camera. But that said, the raw photo that a camera produces these days is not reminiscent of what we see with our eyes. The colors are often much more subdued. The contrast is much more subdued. So I, I like to try to restore that you know, feeling of what it was like seeing that bird or that animal in the field into the final image so you know I do a lot of just basic lighting adjustments correct the color temperature minor saturation adjustments um, shadows highlights whites blacks like all those standard things sometimes a little bit of dodging and burning as well the exception where I'm processing a lot more heavily is for the astrophotography work that I do but that is very standard (laughs) in astrophotography Um, you know to to the goal in astrophotography is usually just to reveal as much detail as possible in a scientific way so it's real
1: you're just revealing details that your eye can't see. Oh, man. I mean, With your workshops and, and then with your own work, this is going back to something you mentioned a while back. We have the whole issue of ethics. Um, you know, again, you, you don't want to feed the bears in town, you know, that kind of stuff. But also the whole notion of tread lightly of, of you know, not not destroying the landscape that you're out there to take an image of. Tell, tell me how this affects the, the way you do your work and tell me if you've seen people doing it badly. Yeah,
0: you know, I think especially in this era that we're living in, when the natural world is, you know, more vulnerable than ever before, it is really important to, to act responsibly in nature. Um, there's also more people interested in photographing nature and experiencing nature than ever before. So there's a lot of human impact on the natural world. Obviously, the most significant things affecting you know, nature are things like habitat loss and climate change and stuff like that. And the effect of photographers is going to be minimal. But despite that, it's really, really important, I believe, that when photographing nature, we're not having a negative impact on the places and the species that we're photographing. Um, there's certainly practices in place um, like baiting large predators and and owls next to roads. These are sorts of things that can get these animals into issues that can cost them their life, right? If an owl is learning to come out to a roadside because it's getting fed there, that's putting that owl at a greater risk of getting hit by a car. Or if a bear is learning that it can get food from people, it might uh, uh, you know get into trouble but from people leaving garbage out in the city, which leads to that bear being killed. So, you know, when we're photographing nature, I think it's really important to be very respectful because in the end, as someone who is out there photographing the natural world, I'm benefiting from the natural world because, you know, it gives so much to me. So I want to show respect back in return. And I want to set a good example when I'm taking pictures and showing that to the world I don't want to be harming animals and doing that and encouraging behaviors that can put those animals at risk. And in the same also relevant to this is that I think as someone that's out there photographing nature and benefiting from nature all that all this time, I think it's my duty to kind of take these photos and show them to the world, show people how beautiful, how incredible and how worth protecting the natural world is. And I think with social media these days, that's easier to do than ever before because anyone can have a platform. Anyone can take a photo and have it seen by people, even if it's just your friends and family or or if it's millions of people around the world, your photos of nature can make a difference and, uh, and make the world a better place.
1: You say on, on your um, social media that you feel it's your duty to show people the essence of, of the world. Is that what you're talking about? Is that what essence means to you? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, I, sh- I should
0: also say, like, I'm very fortunate that I, first of all, live in such a beautiful place, but that I, I'm able to go and experience the natural world. A lot of people don't get to see that. And I think if people are going to want to protect something, they need to see it. And ideally, people get the opportunity to see these things in person, but that's not feasible for everyone. Um, and I feel very lucky that it is something that I can do. But in that same sense, I think that uh, I should I it's important, to, you know, if we're out there in these beautiful places to to share that with people.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't need to be exotic locations. I mean, I, I've got barn swallows in my backyard and, and I've got a couple pictures of those I'm, I'm sort of pleased with. There are coyotes in Manhattan now. You don't need to go to the high Arctic. To get a good nature picture, right? A hundred percent. I'm a big advocate of
0: finding the story, finding the moment in your neighborhood. And that's something that's taken me a long time to learn. And I'm still, you know, learning and developing in this area. But the reality is, if you're not going to take that amazing photo in your neighborhood, who is? right? We can travel Mm -hmm. the world and visit these incredible places. And believe me, I am dying to go to Africa and Antarctica and the high Arctic and photograph these incredible, big, charismatic animals. Like, who wouldn't want to do that? But on the other hand, I also feel like, you
1: know, I live in a beautiful place here, and I've got to do my best to capture what's right around me. Oh, boy. You know, going back to the Audubon Award, 2,500 photographers, more than 10,000 entries and you wound up on top. So again, congratulations! I, th- I think that is just a stellar achievement, and not your first time. You won the youth award, you know, a few years ago as well. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at you, at, you know, age 21 here, thinking, you know, yeah, you the youth awards like today, but no, um, that was several years ago. Tell me what you're working on next.
0: Oh yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for what's to come because I've just graduated school. I just finished my degree uh, in biology at the University of British Columbia. I'm now entering a phase in my life where for the first time, I'm, I'm not going to be in school. So this is my first time I'm actually able to work full time <laughs> on what I love to do. Um, so I'm just, you know, planning lots of exciting photo adventures, trying to capture the most unique and beautiful pictures I can. And like I mentioned earlier, developing a lot of really exciting uh, photography tours and workshop opportunities like the bald eagles here in British Columbia uh, to, uh, to be able to showcase uh, these amazing places and these amazing uh, species.
1: Well, best of luck you know, on every single project you've got there. And everybody, you can look them up right away on Facebook, on Instagram. This is work that is going to knock your socks off. Leron, thank you very much. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Frames, because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.